This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And just last week, right at the end of last week, updates to the rental laws in Victoria passed Parliament, uh, which will mean that property owners will need to make sure their homes uh, have basic features such as a working heater, a working stove, safe connections for power and gas, things like that. And tenants will also have more of a chance of having a pet and put picture hooks in the wall now that these laws have passed. And Anne Martinelli is with Environment Victoria and she's been part of a whole group of people calling for changes to the tenancy laws and it's a good news day by the sounds of it Anne. Yeah hi um yeah look it is these um reforms to the rental laws are long overdue um and I should say that uh Environment Victoria has been involved in um this whole issue specifically from the point of view of wanting to get minimum efficiency standards in place obviously the reforms have covered a much broader agenda than that but that's not what I, you know, can can speak about necessarily today. But we are really glad to see that uh, the legislation that was passed last week uh, does include the power to set standards, um, which is a really important first step. It's not the end of the, the line. Um, as you mentioned, Carlia, things like um, heating has been mentioned, but we, we should say that all the legislation does at the moment is, is give the Minister the power to set standards, which are going to be worked out in regulations down the track. Um, that's actually a good thing because you don't want a whole lot of detail in legislation. It's actually a really complicated... It becomes really prescriptive. That's right. You don't want prescriptive stuff in the laws. What You want them to be in regulations that sit underneath the legislation so that you can change them, so that you can adapt them as, you know, technology changes or, or you know, other, other reasons. Um, so that's going to be where the really hard work is going to be done uh, to actually define what's in those standards. And importantly, um, a bit depends on what happens, you know, with the state election in November. Um, What the legislation does is give the minister the power to set standards. We need to have a minister who wants to use that power. So um, the coalition voted against these reforms um, on Thursday night. Uh, So, you know, the jury's out on on what would happen if we had a a change of government. And what's your sense of of what the community or or people out there think about this? Because obviously for for landlords, it might mean spending some money to bring houses up to scratch, whether that's, you know, heating or or improving energy efficient standards in in a range of different ways. Um, Obviously for tenants, it's having more rights is a good thing. But do you feel like people are kind of broadly on board with these types of reforms? Well, you know, we're going to go into the regulation setting process um, pretty clearly um, calling for some pretty basic stuff that um, we we would um, imagine a lot of houses are hopefully already going to meet. Um, so the things that are going to make the biggest difference um, to both emissions reduction but also bills and comfort for renters are things like insulation, some houses have no insulation at all, uh, but most houses have pretty inadequate insulation. doesn't cost a huge amount to top that up, but it makes a massive difference. Um, fixed heating, like actually, you know, a heater that functions. Because we've got a lot of houses where people are reliant on, you know, plug-in blow heaters, um, which are hugely expensive to run, but also, um, you know, really chuck out, you know, churn out the emissions. Um, and uh, hot water. Um, so hot water heating services are also um, big sources of emissions and and bills. Now, you know, if we we got something in place that made a difference to those three 
things, at least in the beginning, that's going to make a, a massive difference to those houses that don't have those things. Now, what we've said all along is that um, something like standards need to be phased in gradually. We need to start with the basics and then move move on. Um, you know, yes, for, if there are houses out there that don't have those basic things, it is going to cost some money to bring them up to scratch. But we would probably also say you've probably been doing pretty well um, if you haven't even been doing basic maintenance and you're you're managing to earn rental income from a house that doesn't have, have those basic features, well then, you know, possibly it is time to spend a bit of money on the house. Is there resistance to these changes? I know I read something from the real estate industry that they're concerned that changes um, uh, that are forced on, on property owners will make it harder to rent, will put rents up, all of these sorts of things. Uh, is this a concern? Uh, well, look, to get back also to the question um, Dylan, that you answered that, I, that you asked that I didn't really answer. Um, look, we as an environment organisation, um, we were really surprised by the response that we got um, as we started running this campaign in terms of the response that we got from our supporters, both landlords and renters, um, that, you know, we overwhelmingly got a positive response from people who um, felt that this was you know, a, a pretty basic um, gap in uh, in the current situation, um, a pretty basic thing that would make a massive difference, not only to renters' quality of life and, and affordability, but to, you know, the performance of our housing stock, which is a major contributor to climate pollution in Victoria. Um, there are always going to be people who um, oppose any sort of regulation. But I really think actually what we're talking about here is a bit of a culture shift in terms of how we think about rental property. You know, I mean, there's a lot of talk about um, property investors and investment um, retirement savings and all those sorts of things. Yes, people may own um, a, a, a investment property for those reasons. But when you make a decision to now rent that property out and earn an income um, from that property, you're now providing a service. And we would say that you need to provide that housing service at a quality, at a level that isn't a threat to other people's health and safety in the same way that any other small business owner in Victoria, whether you're running a cafe or driving a taxi or whatever, is subject to some sort of regulation to make sure that you're doing that to a minimum standard. And people are and really shocked talking about here. at how... That, that there are none of these standards right now. And I think this, I mean, people that rent might not be if they've got uh, a concern that if they ask for the heater to be fixed, that the next thing that's going to happen is their rent's going to go up. And I suppose there's a culture there of people being reluctant to to call their, their um, you know, agent or their property owner to make improvements to the yeah. property. So we've got a culture shift maybe on both parts, but a lot of people are shocked that there aren't these basic standards in place already. Yeah, I mean, I think most people's sort of understanding of, uh, you know, understandably um, of building regulations is around new buildings and renovations. And so I think people just assume that there are regulations in place that cover all housing. But um, the reality is, uh, you know, a rental property in Collingwood that might be 100 years old um, isn't really subject to any additional minimum standards since it was built, which might have been 100 years ago, except for things that have happened respectively like pool fencing or smoke alarms, um, there aren't necessarily those 
minimum standards. Um, now, of course, um, there are concerns about rent increases. That's a big part of, um, uh, or, you know, the, the central reason why we've really been consistently saying we need to do this in a gradual way. We need to do it in a way that gives landlords uh, plenty of notice so that they can spread those costs over a number of years. Um, and if they, they do do that, um, there really should be no pressure on rent increases. We're talking about something that, you know, if you, if you had to spend, say, $5,000 over five years um, in a rental market where you might be earning, you know, $20,000 a year out of that property, that, sh- that shouldn't be something that uh, should be putting a massive um, pressure on rent increases. But that's also why it was so important that uh, standards were... Uh, put in place in the context of broader reform because there needs to also then be some protections on the other side around um, some, uh, uh, you know, definitions around the the extent to which rents can go up per year. Yeah, Yeah. and I understand it it is going to be capped at at just once a year that rents can be increased as part of these reforms. Yeah. Yeah. Do do we have much of a sense of of how these new laws stack up compared to other states around Australia? Have similar reforms been passed in other states? Yeah, look, it's interesting, actually. It's possibly one of those things where, you know, it's time has come in that there is rental reform uh, movement that has been happening in other states. Uh, Queensland passed uh, rental reform legislation uh, last year and is in the process of doing the work around the um, regulatory work to set standards. Um, I am not across the detail of the entire reform agenda, but my sense is that it is, you know, definitely leading the way in terms of, um, as in Victoria's legislation, I think is definitely, um, looks like a pretty comprehensive um, suite of reforms uh, that that's you know, basically a, a leadership sort of example compared to what's happening in other states. And I wonder too, I mean, talking about its time has come, I mean, a lot of people are now expecting to rent, well, certainly longer than perhaps in the past, but some people forever are likely to be in, in private rental. And again, talking about culture shift, this is one of them. And do you think this is why we're seeing more interest for states to have a look at this area? I guess so, yeah. I mean, renting is definitely a much more mainstream um, and, as you say, long-term uh, situation for for a large number of people, um, and and yeah, as you say, I think we we do really need to get away from this idea that renting is somehow a sort of marginal and temporary activity. Um, that you know you might rent a bit of a drafty cold house as a student, but then you you know buy a house later. I mean that's just not the reality for a lot of people. But also, it, you know, around the world, um, renting is a very standard form of housing tenure and um and you know regardless of the housing affordability issues in melbourne which are extreme um and a a major reason for why a lot of people rent um for a lot of people you know it should also be able to be an active choice too you may choose to rent in a um part of the city where you maybe can't afford to buy a house versus buying a house somewhere you don't want to live um we should be in a situation where that's not you know, feels like a second class sort of choice and that you know that you're still going to um, have access to a decent standard of living if you choose to rent. And you've been looking at kind of this issue in this space for, for quite some time. Do you have much of a sense of just how 
inadequate that the housing stock is around Victoria in terms of, you know, not being energy efficient and being drafty, cold, potentially very hot in summer, that sort of thing. Is our housing stock really in need of a, of a shake-up? Um, look, we've got a, a lot of um, sort of bits of evidence that, that collectively build a picture. Um, it's true that we don't necessarily, like the work has basically not been done to do a really comprehensive assessment of the housing stock. Partly that's because our regulations sort of falling down in other areas as well, as in saying that the ACT, where they've had um, a requirement in place since 2009 for houses that are for sale to disclose their energy efficiency rating. Um, and more recently, uh, rental properties, it, it, there's, a, there's a voluntary, um, uh, you know, if a, if a rental property has already has a rating is required to be disclosed. So they've got a much better body of evidence. They've had, you know, a decade of seeing, you know, what those ratings are. Um, and uh, in the ACT, a report was published earlier this year that showed that there was a massive disparity between the ratings for houses that were for sale versus for rent. Mm. There's no real reason to suggest that Victoria would be much different to that. Um, there's all sorts of anecdotal evidence, like, for instance, um, after the the, um, the analysis that was done after the federal government's home insulation scheme, um, even though that was free, uh, very few landlords took advantage of the opportunity to get their homes insulated. Um, it was something like, you know, 11% of of properties were rental properties that were insulated whereas we know that it's about a third of the um of the housing stock generally that's that's for rent so all of that sort of adds up to suggest that we do have a real disparity there um but um a really important part of why we want to do this as a staged process is to get some of that evidence um you know now that we're in in the situation where the legislation says okay we're going to set standards now the work can start to really get a good handle on if you were going to start um, set standards, say, to capture the bottom 10% to start with, we need to get a really good handle on where that bottom 10% is. Um, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning has been doing some work uh, over the last couple of years to start bu building that body of evidence. So now we just need to crack on and get it done. Mm. And for those listening that are interested in participating and can people now have input into what those standards are going to be? Uh, well, look, there's been a, um, a fairly extensive consultation process over the last couple of years run by the Department of Consumer Affairs in the lead up to this legislative change. I'm not sure whether there's now going to be uh, a similar sort of public consultation process for um, the rest of the sort of bedding down the regulations process. Certainly Environment Victoria and our One Million Homes Alliance partners are going to stay really active in this process and will be... Um, you know, hoping to work very closely with the government to help define what's in those standards. Uh, so, you know, we're, we'll be very keen to be um, talking with our supporters and Victorians generally about uh, what they see as important. But in the in the two or so years um, that Environment Victoria, at least, has been involved in this campaign, and many many of our partners, VCOS Tenants Victoria, obviously, have been involved way longer, um, we have had incredibly active interests from our supporter base around these issues. It really feels like something that people are very um, enthusiastic and, and sort of motivated about. So um, that's where I guess we've, both in terms of the, the, the technical evidence, but also what people say to us is, you know, where we've really been able to hone down on those 
those three key things that for us are a really um, key starting point for efficiency standards, but we'll be working from there. Mm. So I shouldn't go and get my dog from my mum's yet sort of thing. Oh, well, look, I, I can't actually... I can't Not that actually, I have a dog. <laughs> I can't actually speak to um, the broader suite of reforms. But I it's, mean, a, it's a while till we know the exact details. Well, look, it, it, I, my understanding... Look, you, um, if people are wanting more information, um, the Consumer Affairs website is probably the best place to go. So consumer.vic.gov.au has um, a bit of a sort of fact sheet on there on the on the latest news page there at the moment um it does say more details that are to come but in terms of those broader reforms pet ownership long-term leases as far as i understand and i am this is not you know um my area uh, you know a, a range of them are going to be in place once the legislation is enacted um things like standards are going to take a bit longer mm, so, i think yeah. july 2020 is being spoken about as when that will be enacted yeah right okay mm. yeah Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. No worries. Uh, Anne Martinelli from Environment Victoria, and she's given you out some more information there if you want to chase up those details to uh, rental reforms uh, here in Victoria. And The Guardian has established an Aboriginal deaths database which documents every known Aboriginal death in custody from 2008 to 2018. Uh, Tracking deaths in custody has been the job of the Australian Institute of Criminology since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody right back in 1991 recommended the states and territories report annually to Parliament. I learnt this from The Guardian's project called Deaths Inside and Lorena Allen is one of The Guardian team working on this project. She's the Indigenous Affairs Editor and welcome to Triple R, Lorena. And why is it that journalists are now stepping into the role of keeping statistical data and reporting it to us when, um, when you tell us that this is actually the job of government agencies? That's a good question. That's what we asked ourselves and it's the reason why we decided to do the project is because, as you said earlier, the the um, recommendations of the Royal Commission were that governments uh, monitor deaths in custody and not only deaths but the implementation of the recommendations of the Royal Commission. That happened for the first five years or so um, after the Royal Commission. That's actually the reason why the Social Justice Commission of Position was established. But after that five-year time period... Um, the funding dried up and, and a lot of the monitoring just also stopped happening. So when we we wanted to look at um, just, just to track how things have been going, we actually originally wanted to look at how well the states and territories were implementing the Royal Commission because we were covering so many inquests that we thought, hang on, this is not right. What we discovered was that states weren't even properly collecting the data. So we had to start there. We had to start by going back. We ambitiously decided we were going to go back to the 91, to the end of the Royal Commission and track every death in custody since then. But we quickly realised there were far too many, which already that's a major warning sign there. So we decided to look at the last 10 years and read every, every coronial inquest that we could find, every public piece of information we could find about Aboriginal people who died in custody and tracked it that way. So... Yes, in, in a sense, we are doing the job of government. But originally, we wanted to look at how well they were implementing the recommendations. Um, the sad fact is that we couldn't even find that out because we had to find the original. Well, data. that's so, part of your answer, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's right. And so how, how difficult has it been to come across accurate and, and reliable information? I and mean, when you've gone to authorities and, and, and you know, state and territory uh, government authorities to um, find this data, has there been kind of a willingness to, to help or, or has there been some kind of resistance or difficulties you've encountered? Um, so a bit of everything. Um, a lot of the data that we have is already publicly available. So coronial reports, coronial... Um, the different jurisdictions have put all their coronial reports online nowadays. So we found that between 2008 and 2018, there were maybe three or four years where we couldn't get the information we had to write to, to coroner's departments to find out. I mean, they, they, they were okay with handing over the information. Some of it took a long time to get a hold of. Some of it's incomplete. Some of the pre, pre-online records are pretty poorly kept. So we did have to do a lot of digging outside of that but mostly what you find on the database is the publicly available information and and where you see people's names and all their images they are there because we have given them the families have given us permission to do that and so if people head to your website and look at the deaths inside project that you've got there it's a pretty well presented um collation of information Uh, it's it's by state and territory um you have lots of information about the individuals involved but can you tell us a little bit about uh who you've decided to include in the in the data and who you haven't because it is a little bit different from what the government agency was collecting um, yes, yeah, so we haven't ex- excluded anyone. Um, <laughs> I should qualify that by saying that our definition of a death in custody is a little different to the AIC or the Institute of Criminology's definition because we included people who had died as a result of police pursuits and that's not... Um, I mean, we included deaths of people who died after the pursuit was called off and other deaths like that that the coroner might not necessarily consider to be a death in custody because we we were of the view that when there was a police presence or some sort of police involvement, um, we wanted to track that as well because we thought they were important. There were, there were details about those deaths that we thought uh, were significant. So it is a little different in that sense, um, but we have stuck to the, to the definition of a death in custody and that includes police watch houses, everything from being on remand being in police presence, being picked up by the police, all the way through to being a sentenced prisoner. And th- there is, as Carly mentioned, quite a lot of detail a bit about individual cases. And of course, I mean, yes. the one thing that really stands out about your reporting um, is that you can kind of put, you know, a, a face to, to a name and that these are real people who have um, died in, in custody. There are, I guess, more high profile cases people might hear about as a result of, um, you know, some activism and, and advocacy, such as Ms. Do, mm. for example. And people mm. would know, I'm sure, um, you know, in the early 2000s of Moranji Dumanji and, and Palm Island and mm. so on. But there are, of course, many other Aboriginal people who have passed away um, when um, incarcerated. Have you managed to develop, I guess, any broader patterns or, or have an understanding of, of, of why this is happening on a grander scale? I know there's laws, for example, in, the Western, in Western Australia and the Northern Territory that make it more likely that Aboriginal people will be put in prison for relatively minor offences. How does it look when you're mm. kind of looking at this data, um, you know, across the board, when you've put it together in the way that you have? Um, it's really, uh, first of all, I should say it's really traumatising to people. So there's a warning on the front, on the main page before you click through that there are stories in here that are really distressing 
um, and they were certainly really distressing to read. Um, we really want to thank the families who are game enough and brave enough to tell us their stories and to share the images and the names of their family members because, as you said at the start, these are human beings who were loved, who are missed, and most of them, more than half of the Aboriginal people whose deaths we tracked in this database over the last 10 years had not been convicted of any crime. They weren't sentenced prisoners, more than half. So they were on remand or picked up by the police or died as a result of police presence. They weren't criminals. They weren't convicted of anything. They weren't sentenced prisoners. So it was very important to us that we told every story in as respectful a way as we could so that each person has a name, each person, you know, was, was a person and we need to mourn their deaths because every death in custody can be prevented. Um, or mitigated against, and the Royal Commission said as much almost 30 years ago. Um, there are what we also found was that people were being held on remand for very minor offences, you know, summary offences, um, you know, being cheeky to the police, um, being you know under the influence, allegedly under the influence of something in a public place. We also found, like Miss Do, there were there were other deaths as as awful as hers that just didn't get as much um, attention and they happened often enough to be of real concern to us so um, we're really pleased that that federally Labor and the Greens have, have taken this on and have started asking questions of the federal government about what they intend to do to monitor the implementation of the Royal Commission recommendations from now on. I mean it seems it seems outrageous that 30 years down the track we are having the exact same conversation but um, you know, I think that it's the focus, if we keep the focus on this, then perhaps we can get some answers. Lorena, how long will The Guardian be involved in this area? We've heard calls for many years now for justice targets to be reported to the Federal Parliament yeah. as part of the Closing yeah. the Gap. Um, is there... Are you eventually going to be out of a, a job for collecting this database that the, the agencies that have been asked in the past to collect the data will start to do so and publish it annually as, as we expected as a community, you know, right back in 1991? Yeah, um, I, I think in terms of covering Indigenous affairs, I'm never going to be out of a job. <laughs> but, but what I would like to think will happen as a result of this database is that someone in the community will work with us to to take this on, to track it. Um, we know that the University of Queensland has done a very similar project up there. Uh, it took them three years and they tracked every publicly available report on a death in custody. So we're looking at a partner. I mean, we, we'll maintain this for as long as we can. We were giving it a two years uh, on our site that we will look after it. But we are looking at ways that we can turn this project to, to an organisation who would you know, be able to monitor it. And what we really think should happen is a few fundamental things. We need to look at why the recommendations haven't been implemented and what the states and territories intend to do about it. There needs to be federal pressure brought to bear on the states and territories around that. And and we need to look at why it is that coroner's courts are taking so long to provide answers to families why there are such long delays before inquests are heard, and also taking on some of those suggestions that have been made over and over for the last 20 years about diversionary programs, keeping our mob out of jail in the first place. Because what this, this project has uncovered is that our people aren't 
they're, they're coming into contact with the police for no good reason. You know, and, and as soon as they and as soon as they are in that justice system, it's it's almost impossible to get out again. And yeah. for far too many people, it's fatal. I'm interested also in the the potential for journalism to spark change because this is a is a really you know great example of, of um, journalists such as yourself looking into an issue that is you know incredibly important and significant and I think many Australians might know uh, you know that the rate of Aboriginal deaths in custody is a national shame but might not have been you know sparked to pressure governments about it and that sort of thing and we saw a royal commission launch in the Northern Territory following essentially one Four Corners episode mm. about you know the abuse that that inmates were experiencing. Experiencing at that in that particular environment, do you think this will galvanise, galvanise some momentum to, to you know demand change at the political level? What we wanted to do uh, is provide people, provide the community, our readers, with the information that we thought was necessary. Mm. So that's our job, really, is to is to provide that sort of information and. Rather than uh, rather than sort of outright advocacy, mm. what we've suggested with our reporting is ways that governments can reduce the number of people dying in custody. And they're really simple, obvious things that have been said to them over and over for years. For example, the custody notification service that is quite successful in New South Wales needs to be rolled out nationally. This is what people are telling us and on the back of our reporting. So I think that what we're trying to do is we do the research, we do the reporting, we lay it out there and then it's up to um, the experts to really do something about it. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. It's power as well. And I wonder, we do have a new Prime Minister, whether there's a sense of the approach that this um, Prime Minister might take. Could it be different to in the over the past 20 years? Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> speaking, as, speaking as a person now, not as a reporter, I... You know, mm. I think the appointment of Tony Abbott as Special Envoy for Indigenous Affairs says a lot about their attitude to Aboriginal people. I mean, we asked for, as Pat Dodson said, we asked for a voice to Parliament and we got Tony Abbott. Yeah, very poignant. Um, and, yeah, I think that I shared that meme, <laughs> that quote, because, um, yeah, well, congratulations. And it's an incredible amount of work uh, to make something so readable and understandable for people such as us uh, to put this uh, information up online for us all to have a look at. And uh, thanks, Lorena, and thanks to your team and all the best for this project uh, over the next yeah, couple of years. You. Uh, thank Great. you so much for being on Triple R. Thank you. That's great. Thanks. And Triple R has long supported the work of the Thin Green Line Foundation. It's a group that supports rangers around the world and their families with money and supplies so that they can better perform their dangerous work of patrolling parks and protecting animals from poachers. What's less well known is their work to take rangers from one part of the world to hang out and learn from their colleagues working in very different situations. And this happened recently. A bunch of Indigenous rangers from the NTNWA travelled to Kenya and Uganda to visit rangers there and they took Dan Sultan and his guitar along for the journey and filmmaker Reese Graham captured the trip for his Ranger to Ranger doco which we've Dylan and I have both had a look at and um, congrats on the film and uh, thanks for coming in thanks to the studio and uh, Reese, how on earth did you get the job of documenting Dan Sultan a bunch of indigenous rangers hanging out with the heavily armed Kenyan Ugandan Maasai rangers and that sounds like a bit of a dream job doesn't it yeah. um, <laughs> no it came out of the fact that um, I've worked with Dan over many years and we were 
talking one night about the fact that he, I mean, he's been an ambassador of the Thin Green Line, uh, bringing awareness to the kind of work that they do. Um, they obviously have worked with musicians extensively. Yeah, they've done I mean, big fundraising gigs and absolutely. that sort of stuff, yeah. Um, and he mentioned this program and so we ended up in a bit of a conversation just developing the idea that perhaps we could go over together and there would be a film in it. And, of course, like the idea of taking over a group of uh, rangers from different parts of Australia, from... You know, Western Desert, the Jawan Rangers from Southeast Arnhem Land, the, from the Kimberley, taking them over to West Africa to try and knowledge share, to teach and learn, just seemed like something that was, uh, you know, uh, it was a bit too good to be true film, you know, in terms of filmmaking. Um, but also, you know, you get hungry for adventure as well, and it was something I was very, very curious about. And um, having heard Sean talk extensively about the kind of work that they do, to be able to see it on the ground was just something I, you know, had a huge hunger to know know about and then to try and make it into something I could share. Yeah, and so how did you go about filming that? Because essentially these um, Indigenous rangers from here, from various parts of Western Australia and Northern Territory, head over and, and hear about the work that rangers are doing in, in these parts um, of Africa. How did you decide how you were going to film that and, and present it to the audience? Uh it was, I mean, I guess it was something that's, you're looking at such an expansive uh, terrain. There's so many things that are happening, so much work that goes on. What we wanted to do, I mean, it, essentially, because, you know, it, it, it was a film made with the thin green line and obviously everything's done off less than a smell of an oily rag. So it was kind of like I knew that I was going to be doing everything on my own. Um Effectively, it was the decision initially was we'd go over to Uganda to begin with, with Sean and Dan, to get a sense of the kind of work that the Thin Green Line does. And I mean, there were things that were very, um, very intimate, but very important, you know, things like Thin Green Line. For example, supports the the widows or widowers of 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 the men and women who die in, on the front lines or who sacrifice their lives for the the work that they're doing. So they're kind of like quite intimately involved with families on that level. But they also do bigger things like like supporting um, the building of of, uh, of huts or you know buying a mosquito nets, a provision of boots, things that are kind of just just very practical. So I really wanted to see that and include that as part of the world of the film. You know, I knew that the the way to tell his story was was partly through Dan's experience. Let him be our guide for the audience let him experience these things and so through him we would kind of go and meet people meet rangers people dealing sometimes with poaching sometimes they're dealing with community concerns sometimes they're dealing with just straight land maintenance um and then and then a little bit a few weeks after that uh the group arrived from from australia so we met them in nairobi airport and then we traveled out to Amboseli, where we spent a couple of weeks with Maasai Rangers and that was sort of very much the interchange part of it so it went from the kind of the intimate to a broader landscape um, and then I guess you know you sit I worked with a really great editor Natalie Nelesniak who uh, thrashed through things and we finally found a kind of a structure for it well um, you've got a soundtrack we had a soundtrack <laughs> with yeah, Dan yeah, Sultan right. and also the the communities there in um, Uganda and Kenya that you filmed playing music but I, before we get to to that part I mean to put it in perspective uh, you went as part of the um, the trip to a memorial for people that had died in the the line of duty, and and we're talking like a thousand rangers have died in the past decade doing this work. That was just, and I mean, a lot of the rangers are in military gear; they are armed, and the idea that they really are at the front line—it's a very it's very much a policing role. It's quite extreme compared to the ranger work that we, we see in Australia. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think, I guess probably for a lot of people, that when they think of rangers, you know, they probably are thinking of, of the these guys who are, you know, these young men and women who are literally 
protecting elephants from poachers or they're, you know, protecting the highland gorillas, you know. So they, they, they are, they're kind of having to deal with often uh, intense militancy. They're sometimes in war zones. Um, obviously, poaching has become an enormously complex and, and big business. I mean, not only just for the money, but obviously it's financing some terrorist groups are using it as a source of finance. So, like, they're actually, you know, it's very, very perilous um, Work and, and that obviously that stuff is a little bit more well known, but I mean it's still incredibly dangerous here. Like in in Australia, you know, you still well across through Southeast Asia, through Latin America. I mean, quite often when you're dealing with wilderness areas, you're dealing with uh, places that people want to over resource. You know, you have unscrupulous businesses. There's all sorts of shady stuff that goes on as soon as you're dealing with these wild places. And we know we know these things happen. But these are the people who, you know, they're going out for a month at a time and they, they do it here, they do it all throughout the world. They go out for a month at a time to really protect these wild places. And here it might be sacred sites, it might be remote areas that are of great wilderness. Um, and obviously some people make the ultimate sacrifice in laying down their lives, but also it's it's incredibly tough work, you know, for these people. And you just I just have this endless admiration. The more I learnt, the more I was like, it's... This is really it's it's frontline and it, it is a war. Like not everyone loses their life, but I mean they're all battling and and it's um yeah it's extraordinary and also incredible endurance that that rangers you know have to uh, have to display because they're walking. I think in the film um, there's a you know twenty kilometre circuit that some of them go on, often with no water in the absolute scorching heat, which is just kind of a daily routine to patrol the area. Yeah, they're tough as hell. I mean, you got like, and when you like, you know, throw a little filmmaker from Brunswick with dragging twenty kilos of camera gear around after them, it was um, it got a bit grim at times. But your endurance too. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that stuff is amazing. You know, like they 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 walk the land, so they can see if unfamiliar. You know, if they they'll they'll know if poachers are around because they can just tell if there's been disturbances, if the if there's um, you know, obviously looking for tracks. And, I mean, that kind of intimate relationship with the land is something that's pretty amazing. And I think that was something that the a lot of the, the, the rangers from here and the, the Maasai rangers, for example, was something that they had in common. I mean, most of these people, the communities are very connected to the land for, you know, uh, countless generations. And so part of that, that protection and maintenance is just kind of like it's the obligation, you know, it's cultural obligation. So it's there's an interesting contrast, I think, obviously, for the Maasai where they have... In the film, we explore the fact that, for example, the the cattle and, and livestock is a really important part of Maasai culture. Um, but some of the cattle rearing practices in the livestock culture is is uh, threatening to some of the endangered species. So they have to kind of work out ways of like, we can't dig these deep water holes because baby elephants are falling in, but how are we going to water the cattle because we can't ask the Maasai to not do it? But because the rangers are men and women who come from Maasai, they've, you know, they're able to negotiate pretty complex cultural territory. Mm-hmm. rather than just imposing what you know what someone else might think on a scientific level is a is a sort of the best land management practice it always has to be with the communities um and and embracing and and tackling that complex cultural landscape as well yeah and i mean as it came there there's an old man um from western desert and here in australia who went on the tour and he uh, was highlighting in many instances through his journey there the commonalities and he felt very much in tune with the caring for country that was taking place in kenya and it made me think that i need to see what what's happening in the Western Desert now and what's happening in Southeast Arnhem Land. And, in, and I mean, what's going to happen next with, with the documentary, all these kinds of exchanges? Will we see Kenyan rangers come here or what, 
what might come next? I think that's certainly the plan. I mean, I can't speak for the thing in line or working, you know, with the organisation, but, I mean, I know that they're, they're, they're talking extensively about, I mean, uh, bringing over rangers to Australia to, do, to learn about land practices here. I mean, the thing about all rangers is that they're incredibly hungry to learn from their colleagues and they you know they often talk about the international family of rangers and there's there's a great sense of kinship and connectedness and that people want to hear how other people are doing it you know they want to know what their brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are doing to maintain land and and sometimes it's you know like the savannah in kenya there are, there's commonalities with certain landscapes in australia which some of the guys pointed out the guys from the kimberley were like you know i felt really weird i felt a bit nervous but as soon as i got there i was like ah oh, this is not so unfamiliar um, and yeah, and Mookie Taylor, one of the the elders and the senior ranger from from the Matu, he he was talking very much about the fact that he was as he was talking to the old Maasai men. You know, they were, they were translating between like four or five different languages. It'd go from Matu to English to to Swahili, then to Maasai, and they were just kind of then laughing or you know having these sort of points of really strong connection about like you know how are we going to get the young people engaged in the way that we were engaged, or how are we going to maintain the community practices, how do we keep culture alive? Um, and, I mean, those kinds of things are so affirming. As an observer, you watch it and just go, look, this the level of knowledge that people are preserving is just insane, but also the wisdom that that brings to something that I don't know a lot about, like like this kind of maintaining ecosystems and protecting and conservation. Is, it's pretty wild to watch. Hmm. Rhys Graham is our guest talking all about his new documentary, Ranger to Ranger, which um, tracks kind of a, a cultural exchange of Indigenous rangers from Australia heading over to Uganda and Kenya and kind of seeing, I guess, how they do it over there and the challenges. Um, this is all, I guess, about highlighting, uh, partly, I guess, highlighting the work of the Thin Green Line Foundation that they do um, to protect rangers all around the world. And as a filmmaker, I mean, would you go back to, to kind of Uganda or Kenya to kind of follow these sorts of stories through? I imagine it would be a really incredible experience having, you know, been through and, and documented what you have so far. Do you feel a, a connection to this issue? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I would, of course, I would love to go back. I think for me, one of the strongest and most impactful moments, and I think I've probably, Dan shared the same thing. We talked on the way that, you know, f- from being very, very, probably the the dream I had when I was from my, my kind of earliest memories was I wanted to see gorillas in the wilderness. I was completely obsessed as a three-year-old, four-year-old. And all the other kind of dreams and ambitions went and, you know, like being a basketball player, you know, wild rock and roll success. Well, that's a faded away. But seeing <laughs> gorillas has always been there. And so when we went up into the highlands, I mean, that was just transcendent, absolutely extraordinary. You got really close, huh? Yeah, like, I mean, you're sharing this kind of space we've got between us. You're sitting there and, and the only reason we're able to do that is because you're with, a, a group of men and women who are effectively the I mean they're like the 24-7 kind of bodyguards of these they just they make sure they're always around and present to protect these animals from poaching from potential militants and things and I, I just became fascinated by what that's like to to live night after night alongside these families of gorillas and so i mean I, there's a dream film in me that i'm not sure if it's a fiction film or if it's a if it's a documentary but to to something that's about that intimacy that you might have between between the human world and the animal world in something you know in the in the highlands in the jungle to me it's extraordinary we've always seen it through you know like i mean people see gorillas in the mist they talk about jane goodall and and i mean these these are extraordinary things but you know, what we were meeting was rangers who were saying, like, these are our neighbours, like, we grew up 
next to the gorillas. You know, my father would tell me about stories about the gorillas. It's like this is like the the sense of of um, connection is so strong. I was like, that's be- that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, I'm not sure. And as a filmmaker, you kind of just want to know and. The curiosity is kind of endless on that level. So, yeah, I don't know. Somehow I'll find a way to get back there. <laughs> well, I wonder also, I mean, uh, a lot of the, the documentary Ranger to Ranger is about culture and country and, and it's something that Dan writes about in his music, Dan Sultan, and there was a cultural exchange there on with music as well. Can you talk about that? Because, I mean, you've made films before where it's focused on, on music. Um, what was it like to, to film Dan, singer-songwriter with the guitar and then... You turn the camera on this kind of community music. Yeah, I mean, in it's Kenya and Uganda. I guess that's the thing. I mean, like you know, you're you're here at Triple R. The, the, the music is that great commonality, and it's you. You can always, you know, you can pass hours people singing songs back and forth to each other. That you know, while the, there might be things that miss the are not translated, that shared experience is always really powerful. And I mean, Dan. You know, the beautiful thing about Dan is he writes so much about. Um, his own, you know, his own family, his life, you know, the things that are connected to him is obviously very vulnerable in the things that he writes about and there's a great generosity to what he does. So when we'd go to places, you know, like he, I mean, he doesn't want to always bring his guitar out. Sometimes he just wants to listen and be a part of things. Um, but, you know, you get to the end of the day and if all the rangers are sitting around, that kind of, you know, there'd always be something where some, something would get slaughtered in your honour, which is fairly grim sometimes. <laughs> You'd sit around and eat goat and... He'd bring his guitar out, and it's you know it's beautiful. Like he sort of he'll he'll sing old Fitzroy, and then they'll sing a song about the local landscape and ranging there. And um, yeah, it's it's wild. It's really wild. Yeah, and, it was, I, and I think that's the the beautiful thing is obviously when you go to Africa. I mean, every different area has its own musical traditions. They have their a lot of their own languages, and so people are very active in kind of like, you know, you always hear some new song or some new rhythm on some new kind of like style or singer and you just, that curiosity is impossible to, to quell for someone like Dan who's so hungry for music anyway. And I think it's also great for him as an ambassador. That's part of the great gift he can do is he can kind of go, well, okay, well, we've brought these ranges over, but also we're bringing some of the songs and stories. And Yeah, songs. I want a collaboration album from Dan Sultan and Masai Rangers <laughs> yeah. and their families. There's <laughs> a great scene at the end. I hope it's not ruining it for people, but when he's kind of doing his concert and gets to play for 20 or 30 minutes and then there's kind of three, four hours of music that ensues afterwards <laughs> and everyone just takes over, which, of course, he doesn't mind. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, that's like, that was one of the sort of funny things he's always so modest but he was kind of like oh does anyone else have a song and they were like yeah we got a few songs (laughs) and then it was on it was absolutely on yeah fascinating uh thank you for your film and um who knows what might come next because i think there i mean there was a hint i think in the doco that there is a story there for women rangers too i mean we saw women being trained as rangers a new whole group coming through in kenya uh we heard one of the the rangers from i think from the um arnhem land area of of the jawan rangers saying that there's jawan women on patrol in that country yeah yeah absolutely i mean look you know it's one of those things that in the in this film in particular it just had it happened to be it's the first program it happened to be a group of nine men that went over there um but there's an, a program for a group of Indigenous women to go over, I, I believe it's to Tanzania, I might be incorrect with that, to, to, to work with a, a, a group of frontline women who are, are very active in protecting, I think it's quite a militant group, in protecting from elephant poaching. And, of course, there's lots of discussion about bringing uh, groups over here as well. I mean, I think the thing is that 
the conservation traverses gender completely when you, when you get when you're dealing with almost all environments. It's almost, it's it's there's there's so many men and women involved, um, and there's different and complex issues going on for for both. But it, I think that um, there's no doubt that there's more more to come. More to come. Watch this space. Um, filmmaker Reese Graham has been with us. Uh, his doco, Ranger to Ranger. When when can people see it? You can see it at Merrick's General Wine Store, uh, 3160 Frankston Flinders Road on Friday the 14th of September, so this coming Friday with a Q&A and um, pre-film entertainment as well. And also Saturday, September 15th at Werribee Zoo. Um, that one kicks off. Well, the gates open there 5.15pm. There's a walking trail then and then the pre-film entertainment kicks off at 6.20. So you can check out. I'm sure it's on the Think Green Line Foundation's Website. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also on their Facebook page, they've got all the events. But I mean, I'll be dragging my family out to the, the one on Saturday. I'm sure that'll be lots of fun. I mean, it's great to do like the, the national tour is, is mostly at zoos. I mean, like it feels like a, it's a great way to that launch works. a film. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. With the giraffes there yeah, and everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.